All right, good morning, everyone. Happy uh, Thanksgiving weekend. Hope you guys had a great uh, week and, and uh, Thanksgiving holiday, wherever you guys spent it and wherever your travels and uh, everything took you. Uh, Leith and I had a great time here locally, as we usually do, um, but uh, great to uh, be past it, too. <laughs> I don't know. That sounds so negative. I don't know why I said that, but it's, we love Thanksgiving. We're not, we didn't wish it to be done fast or anything like that, but it is uh, nice to be into Advent season here, and we're going to... Um, Start Advent season here at the church uh, with uh, some reflection on 1 Thessalonians 5, which is a series we've been in since September, and after that, uh, the last couple of uh, Sundays in Advent, we'll move a little bit more acutely into uh, looking at themes, uh, traditional Advent themes of anticipation and hope and love and joy and peace and things like that, uh, December 13 and 20, but, uh, but that's not to say it won't be in uh, these couple of weeks as well, but uh, we will be in 1 Thessalonians 5 today. If you're just joining us, this is one of the letters of the New Testament that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, which is a, a place, a city he visited. It's part of the Macedonian region, northern Greece area, think northern Greece. Uh, on his, one of his missionary journeys, planted a church there and is writing back to them from a different city, Athens, south of them, to encourage them. So he's really getting done with his letter. And um, as is true with a lot of Paul's letters and New Testament letters, when he gets to the end, uh, it's, it's kind of like he's um, you know, on his cell phone with them and, and the battery's running out and he has, has a couple of minutes to finish his thoughts and to kind of whip off some pithy, rapid-fire encouragement for them uh, as Christians. And so he's just really in a short, pithy, almost seemingly unrelated manner just encouraging the church with these very short, they all do relate, and I'll try to, I'll try to weave that together here. The undercurrent to all of this will be Christ and him crucified, as it always is, the gospel. Uh, but still a seemingly unrelated, uh, pithy encouragement. So today, the, uh, the, uh, probably the longest title I've ever had in, in 10 years uh, for a sermon title is Rapid Fire Practical Encouragement for Everyday Living in Community with Other Believers. So here we go. <laughs> I'm just going to start by reading this, and you'll see as we go how uh, this is laid out. And um, again, built on the idea that Christ has been crucified, he's been raised, and he's coming back again. In fact, if you're here these last couple of weeks, we talked a lot about eschatology, the study of the future, the Christian hope for uh, Christ's bodily, physical, visible return to earth and bringing heaven here to reign with his people over death and sin and Satan forever and ever and ever. Uh, they, they'll be vanquished and defeated finally and fully, but he is coming back, and so we have that hope. But in light of that, in light of that gospel truth, there are things that should, uh, we, our life should look like, and, and that should affect change in our life. And so we've been talking about that, of course, as we've been going, but as is the case for a lot of Paul's letters, again, the, uh, the gospel itself, the true nature of the gospel uh, comes first, and then what, what that should do to our lives comes second. The order there is important, so I'll actually come back to that here in a little bit. But let's read it in full to begin. If you want to follow along on screen, that'd be great, or crack open your Bibles, follow along there too if you would like, or that sermon insert you have, and um, we'll get started here. So chapter 5, verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and, ad and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, 
abstained from every form of evil. All right, so we're going to look at uh, the first uh, few verses here to begin, verses 12 to 15. It's kind of a one chunk uh, unto itself, and so we'll start there. And what I, what I want to do this morning, and, and we'll talk about these in, each in turn, but I want to start by helping you uh, remember, and this might be the first time you're, you're uh, coming across these things too, but as we talk about a biblical, a healthy biblical theological approach to Christian ethic, we have to talk about the why behind the what. It's a really important thing. It's assumed a lot in scriptures, and so it's a little more in the white space, but uh, it's, a lot, it's a lot of times elsewhere in more of the black space. It's more explicitly stated. Here it's more of a white space thing, though, so I want to assume that we're all remembering this, and for some of you this will be brand new. And so uh, what I mean by this is uh, today's passage, everything I just read, is not the essence of Christianity. Everything we just read there is not the essence of the faith. It's not the center of Christianity, but rather aspects of life lived under the essence of the faith, which is Christ and him crucified and raised. That's the essence. But this is aspects of life lived underneath that umbrella. Or to quote uh, Tim Keller here, a pastor in New York City, he says, we cannot confuse what the gospel is with what the gospel does. We cannot confuse what the gospel is with what it does in our life. Those are distinctly different things. They, they, they're related, they complement one another, but they are different, and very often they get confused as one and one and the same. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the fact, the theological, historical fact, that God loved you and I unto death on a cross 2,000 years ago and secured our salvation through it. God became a human being. It's what we start to anticipate and remember, especially during Advent season, and we rejoice that he became human. God became a human being like us in order to die for us. That's the essence of the good news because all we're called to do in that is place our faith in it, place our trust in it, not to work for it, but as the scriptures tirelessly talk about in the Old and New Testament, we wait for this. God's not waiting for you to perform for him. He's wait we're waiting for him to arrive in the world. That, that's what's so good about it is that God loves us that much. And so that's good, good, good gospel gospel news. But again, with this said, that's the gospel. With this said, the gospel can and does affect change in our lives. It compels us. It controls us. It moves in us to love others ourselves. And so Paul writes this way. In almost all of his letters, he ends this way, whether explicitly saying what I just said there about the relationship between the why and the what. The why of God is like this for us first on a cross 2,000 years ago and the what that should do then for us towards others in our life, towards other believers, but also others just in the world as well, Christian or not. It compels us. And so Paul writes this way. His letters are ordered, you know, for, from the why to the what, from the kind of indicative who we are in Christ, the imperative, the, the command, what should we do with our time on a regular basis uh, for this reason. We must move from grace to action. Think about it that way. We must move, as the scriptures do, from grace, God loves you, God's died for your sins, towards action rather than the other way around, action towards earning the grace of God, which is a hellish doctrine, actually, the antithesis of what the, the Bible is actually saying about Christ. All right, so with that uh, basis, then, I'll explain more. We're going to go through these uh, several things here in the first few verses that uh, fit underneath this framework, this uh, template of sorts that we're going to, this grid we're going to place over the top of these first few verses, and I'll show you what, uh, what I mean. As we look at the what, what is this saying we should do as Christians, but kind of peel back the curtains a bit and look more at that why 
why is this the case? How is Christ behind this? Where's the gospel imaged in these types of activities? So we're starting there rather than with, uh, with the what. So first he starts in the first uh, verse and a half, essentially. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you, speaking of their pastors, their elders, their just lay church leader types, uh, their, the mentors, those in spiritual leadership over them. He's saying, respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord, in Jesus, and who admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Hebrews 13, 17 says, different book, but a similar thing. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have, will have to give an account. All right, so that's the what. But what's the why? Why are we supposed to do this? And a couple layers to that, I think, on face value. Uh, this is a good thing to do. It's right to do this. God does use church leadership for our good in general. Though that, that's been, that can be twisted and can be imperfect. And many of you have probably been hurt by the church in the past. But in general, it's for our good. And, and because a, a pastor, elder, or church leader's work is very important. Hebrews 13 says, that they keep watch over your souls. That's what a leader's supposed to be doing. They might not always be doing that well, but a leader's supposed to be keeping watch over souls. And so respect and esteem is a good thing, right, for someone who's doing that type of, that type of work. But it's not just that kind of basic, well, this is a good thing, but also because, as it says here in the second line here, verse 12, they are over you in the Lord. So a leader is over us, a Christian leader is over us when they're serving over us and shepherding us and guiding us. They're not just over us, they are over us in Christ or in the Lord. It's a very key phrase, easily readoverable, but very important one. And what this is saying is that a leader's leadership is tied to Jesus Christ himself. They're not just over people, they're over them in Christ or in the Lord, as if they are a reflection of him and his leadership over the church. So, in other words, Christ is our ultimate leader, right? In that he literally led us to God, the Father, when he died on the cross for our sins. That's the gospel. Uh, John 10, 3 gets at this. When Jesus talks about himself as shepherd and us as his sheep, he says, the sheep, the church, believers, hear the voice of the shepherd, his voice, Jesus' voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and here's the idea of leadership. He leads them out. He leads them out of from wherever they are to be with him. He, he guides them to greener pastures to feed and away from wolves and into a protective uh, uh, kind of ownership of, of his own. And so that's how he leads us. He leads us to the green pastures of salvation. And because of this gospel, we as Christians, speaking for those of you who are saved, we don't just believe this, we appreciate this, right? We're moved by this gospel. We esteem Christ and respect him uh, to, to use a very mild word for it, we respect him for it, right? we worship him for it, we praise him for it. And so the, the, this is the why behind it, and it's not just do this, but there's a, there's a why as we look at the phrase in the Lord, because as we do this for our leaders and the church, it's kind of like we're doing it for, for Christ, because Christ is so much in leadership. Uh, in 1 Peter 5, uh, Christ is called the chief shepherd, and elders or pastors are called under-shepherds, or, or shepherds who shepherd out of the fact that Christ is the true shepherd in uh, the church setting. So, so as we love Christ, as we adore this, as we esteem him, esteeming church leadership is actually kind of a close whisper of esteeming Christ. And God gets a lot of glory in that because he's so much in 
um, in church leadership. So now this is not saying to be clear that we esteem leaders no matter what and that there's no accountability or that leaders are above admonishment here themselves, but the Bible does say in, in more than one place that it's important for Christians to subject themselves to church leadership. That's a very important, good thing because, again, this is not kind of a random cultural thing, because we subject ourselves to Christ. And so there's a strong connection there between the physical, more the earthly, and the heavenly here that uh, needs to be consistent for, um, for believers. So in general, then, that's what it's saying. Uh, it's not saying leaders are above admonishment or anything like that, just in general, that our respect of leaders points to our respect of Christ. And the flip's true as well. Like a low view of church leadership usually equates to a low view of Christ. In, in my experience personally, and I think and as I've seen other Christians too, usually a low view of church leadership and a disrespect, and I'm talking pervasive, like years and years and years across different churches, I, I've, ne- I don't like, I've never seen, maybe there's some crazy exceptions out there, but I've never seen someone be really close and in love with Jesus as they're hating the church. As they're, they're not seeing a place for being uh, subject to and, and following other leaders. And they've never seen it. And I think that's because the two are connected. People don't just lead, they lead in the Lord. And so, and I, from my, from my uh, perspective too, testimonially, in my past, uh, my maturity, uh, spiritually speaking, though it's a huge work in progress, but my maturity, going, going back to when I became a Christian, came from seeing church leaders as over me in the Lord. I, I didn't learn anything myself, ever. I, I was told things. And I, and I, 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 I kind of tested them with the scriptures. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Paul talks about this too. But I, I did, I've never learned anything myself. It's always been God through people that, that, have, uh, that have taught me and guided me and been patient with me, forgiving me my sin, been patient when I've made extremely huge errors, but guided me to green pastures of salvation, pointed me to Christ, embodied his love, that's the only way I've ever, I've ever grown spiritually. And I think that's how God has wired the, wired the, the church community to be uh, basically a physical image of himself. And not perfect, but a physical image of, of himself. And so then hierarchy in the church then uh, can be a really helpful Christ-imaging thing. And, and hierarchy, depending on your background, can be basically a vulgar swear word today. It uh, depends on your setting, but it is a really, really good thing. It's a, it's a Christ-imaging thing because we all need to be led uh, to, uh, to Christ as he led us to God the Father. So that's the what and the why kind of combined. As we, as we go through these next few, we're going to basically do this about four more times here, a little bit quicker. But uh, the Bible says uh, be in subjection or um, to church leadership, but here in the first Thess uh, passage, to respect those who labor among you and, and to esteem them very highly because of their work, because they serve over you in in the Lord, so to be active in that, but also seeing the, the Christ imaging thing behind it is the big why. All right, let's move on. Verse 13b then, he says, be at peace among yourselves. Speaking to Christians, this is primarily a church thing. So Christian to Christian, be at peace. Make sure you try really hard to be at peace with other believers in your midst, uh, over and over, and it's not always possible, but continually be at peace among yourselves. Again, so we can ask, that's the what, we can ask the why right here again, and, and as we ask that question, as we ask where else does the Bible talk about being at peace in regards to God or Christ, and, and the answer is because God is like this towards us. God has made peace with us through his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, Luke, Luke 6 says in so many words this idea, he gets more at the what by saying, love your enemies, do good, lend, expect nothing in return, 
and your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High. Why? For he, God, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is, is merciful. So th this is the message then, the, the, what, the, the why here that undergirds the what. This is the message that compels Christians to make peace with others. Because he's done it for us. How could we not, ultimately, right? I mean, what would it say about our faith if we believed that God went to hell and back, literally, to make peace with us, his enemies, but we were not willing to try and make amends with other brothers and sisters in Christ around us who have offended us on a much lesser level than we have offended God? What would that say? It would say that we're immature, uh, to put it mildly, but it, on a greater level, it would say that we don't really understand the gospel at all. We don't understand the why. If we're not doing the what well, we haven't undergirded it, we haven't pulled the curtains back to really gaze more at the bottom and said, I am ungrateful and evil. I am an enemy of God, but he has made peace with me. Not just like saying, okay, I'm going to be, I just, I'm just deciding to be at peace today. I'm going to kind of write that down here and just proclaim it. The way he made peace was to die in the worst way imaginable for you and me on a cross for our sins. He shed blood. That's how he made peace. Colossians 1 gets at that. It says, he made peace by the blood of his cross. In Jesus, all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile, that's the peacemaking idea, reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the, by, here's the means, by the blood of his cross. That's the why, that's the gospel, that's the compelling reality that moves us to make peace with other Christians. So, what this is saying then is be at peace in light of this with the people of God and all people, but especially with other Christians, as he says, among yourselves, among the church, be at peace. As you proclaim this gospel, be at peace with other people as you reflect that gospel because you are reconciled forever with the God of the universe. Let that flow into how you just make a decision on a daily basis to not let things come in between you that much, you and other people that, especially that you know well in the church setting, who may have offended you or you them. So ask that question, are there people with whom you have unresolved problems in the church? And maybe you've tried to resolve them and the other party's still at odds with you, that's, that's a different thing, but, but ask that question, have you really tried? Some people go years without resolving conflict with people. They just never talk to them, and it stirs and festers. It's not a gospel thing. It's not, we're not, I think it, that not only are we disobeying the scriptures here, the what's, but we're also kind of disobeying the why. We're not living in the reality that God went to hell and back to reconcile us to himself. That should compel, not twist our arm and obligate, but compel makes us actually want to reconcile in the spirits of how he reconciled with us. All right, uh, third, we'll keep moving here. Verse 14, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. Again, that's the what, but again, what's the why? Because Christ is all these things to us. He's helped, he's been patient, and he's encouraged. These verbal ideas are not random. Psalm 73, 26 says about God, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's my inheritance, my portion. He is the encourager of the faint-hearted in Psalm 73. Hebrews 13, 6 says, 
So we can confidently say as Christians, the Lord is my helper. Jesus is my helper. He's helped me from my sin. He's helped me away from death. He's helped me in the spiritual state of death that I, that I otherwise would reside in. So I will not fear what can man do to me if God's on my side. 2 Peter 3.15 says, and, and count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Count the fact that God doesn't just smite us every time we sin as God loves us and has a way out from sin. That should tell us every, every second we take a breath and live, even though we're constantly sinning, should remind us that God has a way out from sin and he's patient. He's not coming back to judge yet. He's waiting for the full measure of his people to be gathered up from the four corners of the earth, to believe the gospel, to get on the ark so the flood of God's wrath will not overwhelm them in the end. He's patient. Count it as salvation. As we sang earlier, God is slow to anger. Same idea. God is slow to anger. So if you, if you walked in here just sick in sin, just full, full of... Um, full of unresolved issue and sin and tripping up over all kinds of stuff, maybe questioning your salvation, know this, that God is God's patient with you. He's slow to anger. So the first thing you should think is not an angry God, but one who's actually slow to anger in love towards his children. It's incredible. He's, he's not like you and me. We're quick to get angry over pithy, just silly, unmet needs we have on a daily basis. But God is right to be angry over sin, but he's slow to get there at the same time. He's patient with us. And when we look at the cross, we should see the patience of God manifest in bodily form. Saying this is what he's doing in the meantime. Between when sin came into the world and, and, and judgment, in the meantime, his patience is looking like Jesus on a cross bleeding for us. Saying I'm, I'm patient with you. I'm going to pass over your sin because I'm dying in your place. I'm not overwhelming you. And this is true like in, a, in an apocal, kind of grandiose, all of history manner, but it's true in the day-to-day -day as well. If, if you're here like me and you're just sick in sin, like we have sin-sick souls, know these things about God. This is the behind the curtains why. And then, as we have this grounding in the gospel, we know that we're not saved by doing all of this perfectly by loving others, encouraging, helping, being patient with people perfectly, but rather that we're saved by a God who is like this. We're saved by a God who is like this for us first, on a cross. A God who is, was and is like this to us on a regular basis. And so then the, then the call is to make him famous by how we live towards other brothers and sisters. Image him. Be compelled by what's kind of that, that gospel why behind the curtains. Be compelled to do the what um, on, on these types of levels, whether it's admonishment, encouragement, helping the weak, and being patient. So the scripture says, do this. Look out for ways to do this on a regular basis because you're telling a story as you do it. You're telling a gospel. You're not just being a good person. Get that out of your head. It's not what the Bible's saying alone. It's not saying just be a good person. It's saying God is good for you. So therefore, he's helping you to be good, to image his goodness. Be motivated by this. If you're just motivated by a passage that says, well, encourage the faint-hearted. If you think that's the center of Christianity, uh, you're not only just missing the whole point of the scriptures, but you're also going to be twisted into encouragement rather than compelled. You'll do it for the wrong reasons. You'll do it bitter and upset and with contempt for those who are not doing it for you rather than out of joy and happiness and peace 
in knowledge of the fact that God is those things first for you. This last one, too, I kind of got ahead of myself, but one more quick before I move on. Verse 15, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Again, where does this happen? It happens on the cross. This is where God ultimately, this is the why behind the what. So the what is don't repay evil for evil, but think about him. 1 Peter 2 says, when he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. Praise God, or none of us would be here but rather he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. This is the image of God not returning evil unto you for speaking and doing evil unto him by rejecting him, you and me. We've done that. This is God's answer. And judgment is coming for those who are unsaved. But for the church and for all those who are yet to be saved, who are wanting to cross that line, that threshold, this is the image of patience, the image of divine help. This is the image of even though we've reviled, he's been slow to anger. He said, I, I'm stretching my arms out wide to love and to atone for sin and to die in your place substitutionarily as the Lamb of God who bore the sins of the world in a cursed manner on this, on this tree, on this cross. That's, that's the, the essence of this is behind the curtains wise stuff. We have to be compelled out of this. And so when we seek to do good then to everyone and not to be Vengeful. I actually think this, this is why I think Christians should have a really hard time with being vengeful. Not that we won't be tempted to be vengeful and revenge-centered, um, and maybe even take that path sometimes in life. It's wrong to do, but I think this is why if Christians are really centering on the why here. It's, it's really hard to be vengeful because God was not vengeful with us. For worse, uh, for worse sins, then you've been sinned against. Because you've sinned against God more than those around you have sinned against you. But God was more patient with you than you are to other people, and I am to other people. And so that's that kind of convicting, how is this consistent thing here, right? So I think for Christians who are really getting this First Peter 2 thing, it's really, really hard to be bitter. It's really hard to be vengeful. It's really hard to want that revenge, that tit-for-tat type spirituality. For, for whatever reason, it's, it's, it's inconsistent to live there. And so the gospel, the gospel alone will make you less full of yourself and me. It'll make you less hateful. It'll make you less bitter at people who hurt you. It'll make you more patient with them. Because you know, you've been, because you know deep within your heart, you know you've been shown a lot more grace than you're inclined to give. And I, and I know that too. So this alone causes us, compels us, to live in this, in this manner. And that's, the, that's that kind of final thought I want to make sure you're getting here, and I've said it a couple of times, but just throw it in writing here, is the church is a compelled community, not an obligated one. The church is a compelled community, not an obligated one. Again, what I mean by that is the church is compelled to love and good deeds, not, twist, not, not having their arm twisted into it or obligated. If we're obligated, we're missing the point. We're not parting the curtains. We're not asking the why question. We're focused so much on the what and in, in, in our religious stupor that we're not going to back it up and get the big picture here. And so that, that's why we need to live this way. Know this, but live this way. Are we compelled or are we obligated? Second Corinthians 5 uses that word. It says, for the love of Christ compels us. And he goes on to say, to love others and reconcile. 
The reconciliation of God in Christ for us compels us to reconcile ourselves with other people. But notice where he starts. He starts with the why. He starts with the gospel why, the, the big overarching, what has God done for us in his son in the world? So our hearts are moved then, rather than our arms, again, being, being twisted. Luke 7 here, two at the bottom, uh, Jesus speaking, she, he, he says, and I'm just ripping this out of context here, but just for time's sake, I tell you, her sins, speaking of this woman uh, who's in the midst of these people he's teaching, he's saying, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. So he's saying the same thing. If you know how much you've been forgiven your sins, the, 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 the direct, there's a direct relationship here. The more you live in the forgiveness of God, the more you will extend forgiveness to other people. If you love people little, the love of God for you in Christ is pretty small and for me. If you forgive little, if you're inclined to be vengeful rather than forgive, the forgiveness of God in the gospel is probably pretty small for you and you're probably pretty immature in that. And if that's, okay, if that's the case for you right now, that's okay. This is not, say, not, not making a huge claim on where you are salvifically. It's not saying you've lost, you've kind of like wandered from God in an irreconcilable manner. It's just saying that you need to reckon, recognize this. That the answer is not trying harder. The answer is going back to Jesus and really understanding what his posture is towards you. That's the only thing that will lead you to a place of compelling and love and forgiveness is knowing his towards you first, not, not simply the command to love itself, which is really fascinating because if you know the Old Testament storyline, when God said to Israel in the Old Testament, love your neighbor, did that work out pretty well for Israel, if you know the storyline? Terribly. They couldn't do it. In the New Testament, you don't see just the call to love. You see love as God has first loved you in Christ. 1 John 4, 9 to 10 says it. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says it. This implies it here today. As God first loved you in Christ. It's not just this call to love. That's, that never, we're too dead in our sins to be good unto ourselves. God's not preaching and bringing morality in, with the law to the world. He's bringing his son ultimately. The command to love can never change, but... The gospel of love can compel and transform from the inside out and move us to things that the law could never, never do. All right, verses 16 to 18. Let's keep going here, switching gears slightly. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. All right, so here's what God wants from you. We, we've talked about the will of God once already in this series back in chapter 4, if you were around for that, where he said the will of God for you is that you be sanctified in Christ, that you be changed, transformed in the gospel, and that you be sexually pure. Here it just kind of picks up with these, the theme continues into chapter 5 here. So he says, I want you to, Christian or church, to rejoice, to pray, and to give thanks. To rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and to give thanks in all circumstances. So even in very dire circumstances, to be thankful people. So not just good circumstances, that's easy, but also in bad circumstances, more dire ones, to give thanks there as well. For, again, because this is the will of God in Christ Jesus this, for you. This is what he wants. 
So that's the why. The why is, I think, because as we kind of back up here and again get the big picture, because we know we're saved by grace, not by what we do. He's not asking ultimately for, any, for anything else. Even in light of what we just talked about, there's a lot for Christians to do in a day. But what he really wants, I think this gets actually more at the essence of Christianity, is he just wants belief. He wants rejoicing in the fact that we're saved, a prayerfulness that looks like dependence on him continually, and thankfulness for the gospel of, of love and forgiveness in, in our life. So I think if we, again, came up a few weeks ago too, but if we obsess over the details, super easy to do this. I know a lot of you are asking this question maybe presently about just kind of, uh, you know, you're in this time of life where you're graduating or maybe not, but in job change stuff or you're considering moving or whatever it is. If you obsess over the details of, in terms of the will of God issue, which way does God want me to turn, literally, and I've, and I've kind of been there myself, I know and uh, have friends too that were more in that type of spirituality, in that place spiritually, kind of like a, does God want me to have Cheerios Hills or Wheaties this morning, and I'm not exaggerating, uh, and just obsessing over that, uh, we, we miss the point, I think. What's, what's the big picture here? What's what the Bible actually say about his will? What he really wants? And not that we shouldn't pray about the minutia, but What's the will of God is to be those who rejoice, those who pray and depend on God continually, and those who give thanks because God's done everything for us and we've done nothing. <clears throat> I think this, um, this type of spirituality too, uh, and it has to be, of course, read in light of what we've just been saying, idleness and laziness are sinful. He actually says encourage the idle, admonish the idle here. So it's not talking about Christian passivity here, uh, but even in light of what we were just saying about there's lots of work to be done and things we can be filling our days with, the gospel affects change and all that stuff. I think this type of spirituality, if we're just focusing on this, rejoicing, praying, giving thanks, I think this type of spirituality, uh, for many at least, can really offend, I think, the conservative and the liberal alike. Conservatives and liberals, I think, both I'm speaking of Christians here too, but it could be outside that, um, that camp too. But it can offend both because both, I think, say to just the idea, like if you just walked up and kind of just surveyed a whole bunch of Christians and from different, uh, different backgrounds and said, my, my focus on a daily basis is simply to rejoice in the gospel, just to believe and be thankful and to pray for more Jesus in my life. That's basically all I'm really focusing on. I think basically what, what you're going to get a lot, and maybe not from all, I'm not saying that either, but from both extreme conservatives and extreme liberals alike, is why aren't you doing more? There's so much, so much, so much more to do. That's all you're doing? You're just resting in the gospel? You're just resting in Christ? Like, that's great, but there's so much more to do. And I think to this, the, the biblically balanced kind of third way, taking the third road of Jesus, not the extreme conservative or extreme liberal side, but the third side of Christ, I think what, what, what this type of Christian responds to that, what, what he says is the reason why we're not doing more sometimes, or looks, at least it looks that way, is because God has done everything. Because we've won. Because Jesus said on the cross, it's finished. So what else is there to do? Don't add to something that Jesus says it's finished. That would be very wrong of us, right? Jesus says it's finished. So it, it's, you know, it, he walked out of that tomb, that's That's it. <laughs> That it's, it's over. So it's kind of like Christians then rejoice in the way we'd rejoice um, 
when, and I'm, I remember the 91 series, not the 87, I was 13 in 91, but like, um, we'd rejoice over watching the Twins win the World Series. Uh, it's, it's over, right? It's, it's, it'd be weird to say after the Twins won, well, let's go guys, get back to work, head to the bullpen, you know, let's start throwing some balls. You know, what are you doing? Just dancing all the time, you know, and what's champagne flying everywhere? What's the deal? Right? It's over. It's done. It's finished. Again, this is not encouraging Christian passivity, but there is this element to saying when the Bible talks about his will, focusing on rest, closing our mouths before the Lord. Psalm 46.10, being still, not moving before the Lord and rejoicing that he is who he is. We have to have a huge element to our spirituality and looking at his will that focuses on that kind of things as we rest underneath the umbrella of it is finished. Don't add to it. If there's work to be done, it's to continue the it is finished mantra in the world as we preach, as we live, as we rest, as we rejoice in it, as we pray to, uh, for more of it, in the, evangelize in light of it. One thing that would, that would not be helpful or healthy for us as a church is to, is to live post-World Series win as though it's the middle of the season. Uh, that's just not, that's not the will of God for us. So we have to have that element of it's, it's, it's over. Uh, Christ said it's finished. And having this will be more focused on the broad gospel truth rather than the minutia. So at least piece that in. Again, not passivity, not idleness. It's just meaning peace. And focusing on the broad uh, of the, uh, the will of God rather than the specific. So, all right, verses 16 to 18 is, uh, is those three things. Verses 19 to 21. And we'll um, say a couple of things here before wrapping up. Verse 19 says, Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. So kind of saying one, it's basically one thought here. I'll explain these three pieces. But as you think about prophecy, and, and he's saying don't quench the spirit here because the spirit's the one who, who speaks for God, who speaks through Christians. Uh, it's, it's not ever people. If it's true, it's never the person. It's the spirit through the person. If it's not true, it's the person. But if it's true, if it's good and beautiful and gospel-centric, it's always the spirit of God. So we think of prophecy then, don't think of New Testament prophecy as predictive, uh, that you might think of this aspect of Old Testament prophecy uh, being. Uh, it's a little bit different. Think of it as, like it was for most of the Old Testament prophecy actually, think of it as proclamative, as simply speaking forth the word of the Lord. It's saying, here's what God says, that's prophecy. And so Christians then are called in 1 Corinthians 14, 1, to pursue all gifts, all the spiritual gifts, especially that you might prophesy, because it's the most explicit, direct, pointing arrow way to get to the gospel. All the other gifts are good, really, really good, and God dispenses them as he wills, but a lot of them are a little bit less explicitly word-centered and directly um, explicit on what the gospel is and what we should do in light of it. So in this New Testament era, this church age, Christ is the final word. He, we said that last week, how we're in the last days. Christ is this final uh, fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies, this final word, all the promises of God beforehand find their yes in Jesus. Second Corinthians 1 says he's this final thing God has to say to the world. That's why he's called the word. Jesus is called the word of God in John 1. It, he, he is the, the essence of what God has, has to say uh, to the church and to a dying world. And so 
as we apply that then to this, uh, God keeps speaking these words through his people, the gospel. And so the call here is to not despise uh, casual prophetic encouragements from believers that are true, that are biblical, uh, preaching, teaching, uh, general encouragement and admonishment that are biblical, uh, but rather test them, it says. Run them through the gauntlet of Scripture and hold fast to what is good. Acts 17.11 talks about uh, an example of this in narrative form. It says, And the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. Interesting uh, how that's brought in there. But, and they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. So this, this doesn't mean, verses 19 to 21, that if you don't like the doctrine, the teaching, that you can instantly discard it. Like you're not, we're, not, we're not applying verse uh, 21 well if we, um, if we do that. N- not liking a teaching doesn't mean you're testing it. It's not passive. Nor are you, again, applying verse 21. In, in Acts 17, they basically just took the Bible and they filtered everything they were hearing through it to test uh, what they were hearing. The prophecies of the gospel, the prophecies of the Christ, the word of the Lord in this New Testament age we live, the final thing God has to say, is it? Does it line up with the promises of the Old Testament? Does it line up with what we know about uh, the gospel accounts and so forth? And then they held fast to what, to what was good. Interesting, isn't it, that Paul's mentioned here is he's not this infallible guy. He's just a guy who was inspired to write part of the Bible for sure, but that, and this church was still testing. Can you imagine Paul standing here and saying, well, I don't know, Paul. Let me just take a second here and kind of you know, flip through this sucker and... Um, but that's good, like it's because God's not infallible, God is alone, uh, and so they tested it. And you the same thing with me or Spencer or the elders preaching or anything you ever hear in a podcast, the Bible is the authoritative word of God, and we speak from it and, and, and under it and, and through it and with the power of it, true and beautiful and good and salvific things, but we're also fallible, and so we'll not say some true things too unintentionally but to sift that out. And so don't despise prophecies, but, but test things and hold fast, cling to the goodness of the gospel as, as it's preached over you over and over and over again. And understand that too, that there'll be times you guys will hear things. If this is true, and the testing is, is the piece, not the liking piece, there will be things that you don't like to hear. There will be things that God wants to correct you on because you don't have the right perspective on, or me, we don't have a right perspective on certain matters biblically, and so God is going to tell us something. Oh, I thought it was this my whole life, and it's uncomfortable to move here, but I can see how the scriptures, you know, because Jesus said that here, Paul says that here, I can see how that's actually true, and so we shift. But that's an uncomfortable thing a lot of times to intellectually or otherwise move or shift one, one way, but we have to test them, and, and it's not, so it's not the liking necessarily, it's the what's true aspect to it, and then we we shift accordingly. We don't despise then the prophecies. We don't despise the truth being spoken. We rest in it, and we know it's for our good that God speaks to other Christians for our benefit. So, All right, so in conclusion then, as we ask this question, what does it mean to live a gospel-centered manner in a gospel-centered way among other believers I think you can summarize it uh, like this, uh, that, that people who believe the gospel, so who believe the fact that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, 
Remember, we're compelled by the gospel to a life of love and peace and reconciliation, helping others and encouragement. They don't live reactionary, vengeful lives, but they return kindness towards the evil that they're shown because Christ did that for them. They pray. They give thanks for everything, even the difficult things, uh, because it's not about them. And they rejoice continually. And they never tire of hearing the prophecy of the gospel heralded over them. They don't despise it or the related counsel they get from believers to live uprightly in light of it. Rather, they continually receive it. And so I think the encouragement here, you guys, is, is not just to do these things. And I would say that. I think the scriptures, God is saying that to all of us. Do these things. And I'm, I've been praying this week for myself and you guys that as we even just read that paragraph, that there would be aspects of that that are particularly poignant to you. Uh, aspects where you're misfiring or aspects where God really has something for you uh, spiritually uh, to grow in and that you would think about that. But don't, but I think the the biggest encouragement I have for you is not just to think about the what. Please, please, don't tire thinking about the why because, uh, and I'm saying this from experience, you will not, you will spin your tires in the thickest of mud for years and years and years if all you do is leave here with, I have to admonish the idol better. Good luck. See you back here next week when you don't do it once. You know? So, but, 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 if you know that Christ has admonished you with gentleness, has been patient with you, has helped you out of your sin, if you really rest in that well yourself and with your spouse or friends or kids or community group or just this morning as we, as we sing these things kind of among, to ourselves and among ourselves, you will be compelled. The Spirit compels. The love of Christ compels. It compels. It controls. It moves. It urges. It, like that woman in, in Luke 7 it, it makes us love much because we've been forgiven a whole ton of sins. And we, every day we think he's forgiven me more and more and more than I ever realized. And we look at the cross and say, that's where my salvation was purchased. That's how, that's how far God went to save me. And, and we live out of that. And we, we preach that to ourselves and others. And, and we image it. We reflect it. We're compelled unto it. So that the church then, and, and I'll speak to Hiawathian. Some of, some of you I know are just visiting today. But think of this for whatever your home church setting is. The church then becomes this living, breathing dramatization of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're not just hearing sermons or, or singing hymns or songs, but we're actually seeing little, small, micro, tangible expressions of the gospel interpersonally every single day. Or every a few times a week or at least every week, we're just seeing patience shown. We're seeing small acts of help. We're seeing admonishment and encouragement done in patience. We're seeing, we're seeing love. We're seeing reconciliation happen between people that just don't like each other at all, but they're, all of a sudden they're laughing together. How how'd that happen? We're seeing images of what God does for lost, dead sinners like us, not even looking for him. God came to us and rescued us. And so we're seeing small dramatizations of that in the church every, uh, every single every single day, which is what makes a church, one of the many things that makes a church such a beautiful, necessary thing uh, for us as, as Christians. So, so I commend you guys to this and myself, and, uh, and I'll close us in prayer here to pray uh, for these things <clears throat> as well as we seek. And we can actually look at verse 22, which says, abstain from every form of evil. So try hard with that one too. No, I'm just kidding. 
I like, I like that he throws that one on there in the end, you know. After all this, just abstain from every form of evil. I don't have much time here, so let's just kind of tack that one on there. We wouldn't be typing, but, um, but I think that it's not just a random thing. I think when he says abstain from evil, he's saying abstain from the opposite of what we just talked about. So, in other words, abstain from not looking at the why. Abstain from despising the God, hearing the gospel over and over and over again. Abstain from not reconciling with people. Um, that would be evil. So to be evil would be to not pray, to not be joyful, to not be thankful in all circumstances. That would be an evil thing because it w- it would not we wouldn't be living out of the truth of the gospel. That's the the ultimate evil is is disbelief. That's the worst of sins. Disbelief in God. Everything flows from that. It goes way back to the beginning. If you know Genesis three. Adam and Eve, they didn't just eat the fruit. They believed they were okay and sufficient, and God wasn't okay. He wasn't sufficient. He wasn't necessary. He wasn't good and true and beautiful. He was wrong. He was a liar, at least partially. And so it all, it all stems back to that. And so evil, then, is not just doing bad things. It's replacing God with good things. And so it becomes this kind of pervasive lifestyle of disbelief, and focus on self. Even doing good things can be sin then if they don't proceed from faith. And so um, I think that's why he leaves us with that kind of that pithy, almost overarching, abstain from every form of evil because you've been saved unto that. God saved you from it. And he's given you a new life that you're compelled unto because he loves you and he's died for you. So let me pray for us. God, thanks so much uh, for today, for your grace in the gospel. Thanks for dying for our sins afresh and even dying for us when we don't fully appreciate that truth and message. Uh, you're dying for people that don't fully appreciate and reciprocate the love you've shown, and we never will. But praise be to God, that's not what we're asked of. We're asked to have faith, even as small as a mustard seed in the right direction. The object of our faith is more important than the amount of our faith. So God, wherever we are spiritually, Christian or not today, very weak, immature, very spiritually mature Christian by your grace, wherever we are on the spectrum of that you are sufficient you're enough you love us you've come to help us from our sin you've come to not revile in return when we reviled you but you christ are the ultimate expression of the patience and mercy and help and and uh, deliverance of god and so we got to praise we sing these last couple of songs that we just we really would rejoice we take peace in knowing that Really, all is required of us is faith, your will, is that we simply rejoice in you, pray to you, be thankful towards you for the gospel all our days. Wherever we live, whatever our marital status, whatever our job is, uh, that that's what you want from our life, our sanctification in the gospel, our joy. You want our happiness in the fact that you love us. That's what you're tirelessly willing, wanting in our life, and so... God, forgive us for uh, looking more towards what kind of cereal do you want us to eat more than that because that's just such a, talk about replacing something beautiful with something just silly, God. And so may we look more towards you than in your will, in your son for our life than in those other things. So in Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond together.